I have so looked forward uh, to being able to worship with you on a weekend up here like Mary. Uh, my family has fallen in love with being a part of Summit, and OJ has just raved about uh, what a great congregation this is, and uh, I just thank you for a warm welcome this morning. We're really excited to be a part of what God's doing at Summit. Uh, John mentioned uh, last summer we moved into the neighborhood real close to them, maybe about a mile apart from each other, and I have to tell you about our first interaction, though, uh, really as we start talking about Summit a little bit. Uh, we had gone over to the Parker's house, uh, John and Brandy, he invited us over for dinner and um, just wonderful hosts, uh, really wonderful meal, had a great time, got to know their kids, love them. And whenever we go uh, spend time at people's house, we often like to play games. So we brought apples to apples along. If you've ever played apples to apples, that's a fun one. We, uh, we started settling into their family room and uh, just getting ready to have a good time together. John said, hey, you ought to sit in this seat, check this out. And I, so I was looking at it and he starts telling me about this wooden seat that is hand carved from one of the trips that our, a team had taken to Africa. If you've been around Summit for a while, you know Africa is a big deal to us. And on one of the trips, John was able to get this hand-carved chair. It's really pretty cool. I went ahead and took a seat in it. I'm like, oh, it's a different feel, but all right, let's sit here. We'll play some apples to apples in this amazing chair. Um, right about then, my son Garrett comes running around the room, ready to jump in for the game, jumps up on my lap, and I mean, couldn't have been a split second later, I hear this crack, kaboom. And man, my feet are on the ceiling and I'm all sprawled out on the floor. There's wood everywhere. And this one of a kind, hand carved, you don't go down to rooms to go to get a replacement kind of a chair is in shambles. And I thought that's the kind of first impression you really wanna make on some people, isn't it? It was a really special moment. Um, incidentally, if, uh, if you've been trying to convince your spouse that you need new furniture at your house, we're happy to come over and do what we can to help you with that process. So. Now, we absolutely love being a part of Summit. One of the things that we loved about John and Brandy, though, is this. Um, if, if, if you want to know the heartbeat and the character of an organization or a church, a lot of times you want to look to their leaders and you want to see what they bleed and what they're about. And the more that Leslie and I were around John and Brandy and their kids and the way they reflected just the beauty of Jesus, the love they have for this community and our world, it got us really excited uh, about being a part of Summit. And so you are, we are being led by some tremendous leaders and it is shaping the heartbeat of a wonderful church uh, here in Central Florida. I mentioned my family. I got to show a picture. Listen, every time Jim speaks, he gets to show pictures of his grandkids, right? So uh, let me show a picture of my family here for those who don't know us. My beautiful bride, Leslie, in the middle there. We will be celebrating 23 years of marriage uh, this summer. Um, our daughter, Lauren, uh, turned 16 in the fall. Lauren is, uh, she's just full of beauty and joy and is high on life. And uh, she is so fun. And then Garrett, our nine-year-old. Um, the force is strong with this one. Uh, he is a big Star Wars fan and he's full of creativity and curiosity. Uh, we just are just blessed with our family and we're so excited to have our family knitting with yours, uh, not only at Herndon, but here and at Waterford and 33rd Street and what God is doing all through Central Florida through Summit Church. A couple things that might be uh, just great to know about me. That way you get to know me a little bit. First of all, it's important to know this one. I am a huge Notre Dame fan. Um, I've got a few friends here from uh, Northland who used to attend or, or attend over there, and they know I, I talk about Nor uh, Notre Dame every once in a while. My parents grew up, or I'm sorry, I ra was raised uh, near the Notre Dame campus. Uh, my parents live about a mile and a half from uh, Notre Dame Stadium uh, up in South Bend, Indiana. And so because of that, we don't use language in my home like Buckeyes or Gators or Seminoles or Crimson Tide. In fact, I want to apologize for using such filthy language up here this morning, actually. Those are just vile. Um, huge fighting Irish fans. Uh, love Notre Dame football. Uh, another thing that might be helpful to know about me is I'm a pastor's kid. My dad has been a minister since I was, you know, a little preschooler. 
And um, that is a gift to grow up in that kind of a family. Uh, man, just this beautiful home of faith and integrity and character. Um, but being a pastor's kid doesn't come without its unique challenges and unique stories. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I'll tell you one, we were living in Bloomington, Indiana at the time, and um, my, our Indiana University is in Bloomington. So if you grow up in, in Indiana, you root for Notre Dame football and you root for Indiana basketball. Uh, not severe loyalties there. We just like the teams that usually win. Um, but we were cheering for IU basketball when I was a kid. And the year, when I was 10, that year they had won the men's Big Ten basketball championship. Woohoo! So everybody's heading the store, getting all the memorabilia. We went uh, on a Saturday afternoon to JCPenney. They got their whole spread out there of all the commemorative things, celebrating the Big 10 championship, and I had kind of just brought myself over to that area while mom and dad were shopping, and I found a pin that really caught my eye that I liked, and I decided to make said pin my own, and mind you, this is not the finest moment of my hour of life here, but I went in and took it and just stuck it in my pocket, again, as a 10-year-old. The fatal mistake that I made was I forgot to take the crazy pin out of my pocket, and when mom was doing the laundry later that week, she found the pin price tag on it and everything still. And I had a story here trying to figure out how to explain where did I get this pen. Um, moments later, I'm meeting with mom and dad and my dad is getting on the phone, calling JCPenney, trying to get in touch with the security department, say, hey, my son is a criminal. Um, I, I need to bring him down. He is shoplifted from your store. We make a fast track down to JCPenney, met by two security guards there, take us in the back room and they give me a little bit of a run around. Son, we shouldn't be doing this. And don't you realize we got cameras and all that kind of stuff and really gave me the challenge there. Ah, you know, shaking in my boots. All right, well, thank you, Mr. Bell, for bringing the merchandise back. Hope you learned your lesson, son. You guys are free to go. Not my dad. No, my dad is like, wait a second. This is all, fellas? I mean, surely there's like a record that needs to be filled out on this. In fact, as I'm thinking about it here as I was driving over, is this one night in jail or is it two nights in jail that he gets for doing this? I mean, you should be on the phone with the authorities, right? In fact, and I'm not making any of that up, by the time they were done with this conversation, the security guards were feeling bad for me uh, that my dad was involved in this. That's just who my dad is, a man of integrity and character. And growing up in a home like that, though, will shape you. And it's a great gift. A lot of my life was shaped by the fact that when we see things wrong, we do what we can to make them right. When we see things that have been broken or are uh, out of place, we do what we can to fix them. And that's really, in a word, what justice is. When we talk about taking things that are not right and we want to restore them. We want to be people of justice. And again, that, that, those character traits significantly impacted my life. I remember when I was um, a sophomore in high school, I had a friend named Brian. And what made Brian unique was that he had special needs. And what made Brian unique also meant that a lot of times he'd get teased and ridiculed. And I hated seeing that. There was something inside. Every time I'd see that happen, that would just kind of brew up in me. And I would want to come to Brian's defense. And if you've done that before for somebody who has been under attack for some kind of an injustice like that, you know that sometimes that costs you personally. And it did. But you can't help but respond when you see something like that that's not right. Remember when I was uh, in college, I came home for the summer and I was working at a manufacturing plant. And at that plant, I got to know this guy named Richard. Richard had no faith story. Um, and I had an opportunity. I was, I was coming home from, a, I was actually in seminary at the time and uh, studying to be a pastor and sharing a little bit about my life. And he became very interested in the things of Jesus as a result. And uh, I remember one, one time he said, hey, this weekend, I'd love, to, uh, I'd love to go to church with you. Would that be okay? Well, what might be helpful to know is Richard was black. And the church that I went to at the time there, was, there wasn't a single African-American. There wasn't a single Asian person. There wasn't a single Hispanic person. Just a whole bunch of pasty white Midwestern folk. But I was like, absolutely, I'm bringing Richard along. 
And so Richard, I went to pick him up that Sunday, but he had a surprise with me. He had three of his friends, all African-American as well, uh, to go to church with me. I was like, yeah, the more the merrier. So we went to church. I was so excited about my new friends I'm making. I can take you to where the pew was that we were sitting on. Me and Richard and my three new friends and this whole sea of white humanity. And Richard and his friends, were they welcome to worship with us? Oh, absolutely. But not without prejudice. I, it was quite obvious. In fact, I, I can still remember some of the expressions and the faces that um, they received from others. I remember some of the looks that I received uh, as I was sitting with my new friends here. And I remember just, this is not right. There's something unjust about this. There's something wrong. And it just kind of rages up in you a little bit. You get an angst and you want to take things that you know aren't as they should be and you want to fix them. You want to restore them to the way, to way they ought to be. Now, it may be that some of you as you've looked on the screen, you've noticed there's something that's not right. Has anybody noticed it? A few of you? Yeah, yeah, what is it? It's a typo. The word people is not spelled that way, people. Um, so we, I wanted to hear, some of you are thinking, oh, it's the new guy. And man, they didn't even get the slide right for the poor guy. That's so, that's so sad. This one's on me. I asked him to do this because I want to feel a little bit of tension as you see that. If you're like me, man, I'll be watching the news sometimes at night, got the talking head on there and little tickers going across the bottom. And if there's a typo, I don't care what he or she just said, I want that fixed right now. In fact, I'm watching you for it to loop back around. And no, they didn't fix it yet. So... But there's something that brews up in you when you see something that you know what it ought to be and it's not right. Am I correct? Yeah? So I'm going to ask them if they can go ahead and change that. There they go. That's good. That way you'll hear the rest of the message, hopefully. Um, there's something in us, even when we see a typo, but even greater when there's an injustice that causes us to want to make it right. And here's the great thing. Whether you're a follower of Jesus and you claim to be a Christian or, or whether you today are just like, I'm not a Christian. I'm just trying to understand this faith thing. I'm trying to understand who he is. Whenever you feel that injustice raging inside of you, it's actually a reflection of the heart of God. See, justice matters are a big topic in, in the world today. We hear about them often in the news, all the different topics that are related to justice. But they've always been a big issue in the heart of God. The heartbeat of God all through scripture expresses this God who wants to make things right. He wants to restore things as he had originally intended them to be. And again, all through scripture we see this, particularly in the passage that we're going to look at for a few minutes together this morning. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. We've been journeying through this um, series called Justice. And so the last couple of weeks you've heard other speakers looking at this passage as well. We want to look there again this morning. If you don't have a Bible, that's great. On the back of your bulletin today, uh, the verses are typed out so you can read along. But look at this passage and look at what Jesus has to say regarding justice. Jesus, it says in verse 16, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. So he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind. He set the oppressed, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or they would recognize that as the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, he then rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
It's, what's interesting is when I uh, read through the New Testament, you may do the same t- thing too. Sometimes you'll see places mentioned like Nazareth and you think, man, this must have been a huge metropolitan city at the time with all kinds of things going on. It's not so. Uh, most archaeologists and Bible scholars agree that Nazareth at this time was a population of about 400 just a little village that was very insignificant. In fact, the whole city, the whole village of Nazareth could fit in this room. And so when you have a village like that and you're living during a time when people aren't moving from city to city or region to region very much, you've got people that grow up really knowing each other. You think about this, there are people, moms and dads in this audience when Jesus is speaking that probably were childhood friends of Jesus's. In fact, some of them might have played childhood games, gone to rabbinical school with him. Some of them might even, the scripture tells us that Jesus and his father Joseph were a carpenter, right? Some of them might even have a piece of furniture in their home that Jesus had actually made. And I'm willing to bet this, if it was a chair that Jesus had made in your home, it would not have broke when you sat on it. (laughs) Just, Just making sure that's there. All that to say, they knew Jesus. They had grown up with him. They knew of his story. And Jesus has become relatively famous all throughout the region. Um, He had been performing signs and wonders or miracles. He had been preaching and proclaiming things that were all new to the people, a new version of uh, religion that they were finding freedom in. And and so there was great excitement that their boy was coming home uh, to be able to share something in the synagogue that weekend. You don't want to be late for church. So what is it that Jesus is going to be sharing this weekend? Well, he picks up a scroll from Isaiah. That's what he picks up in this passage, Isaiah 61, and reads a very familiar passage to them. Uh, This was a very meaningful, recognizable passage to them because it was something that um, was so important to the nation of Israel. Every 50 years was this year of jubilee where all things in essence were made new. The ground was not allowed to be farmed or an agriculture would rest so that the ground could be kind of restored during this year of jubilee or the year of the Lord, as he says in this passage. All debts were wiped off. If you had any kind of debt at all, it was forgiven and set over again. And um, any land that had been taken because you couldn't pay your debts, so they would maybe take your property, the land was restored back to its original owner. In in essence, justice is taking place. Things are set back to new again. They're made right. In fact, a big one was slaves or indentured servants. Some people had no ability to pay off their debts. And so they were set free as a result. They would have been put into captivity. They would have had to work off the hours, work off the debt. But in the year of Jubilee, they were set free. And this was a very familiar passage. And it's the passage that Jesus uses to, in essence, launch his ministry. And when he reads this passage, he adds something very important. It's on the end there in verse 20. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He says to them, this familiar passage that you know, that you've read, we've read together for centuries, from generation to generation, it's been passed on. I have been sent to let you know that all things are going to be made right. All things are meant to be made new. And these words that we have recited here together today, they're all about me. And so in this series, we've been looking at this message of Jesus and we've been taking phrase by phrase, what does he mean when he says these things? And the phrase we wanna look at this this weekend is this. He has come to set the prisoners free. I have come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. What does Jesus mean when he says he has come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Well, according to the most recent statistics from the U.S. Bureau of Justice, there are roughly 2.4 million people today in the United States alone that are behind bars. Roughly 2.4 million people woke up this morning in some version of a jail cell. And obviously, um, that includes part of Summit. 
As, as John was mentioning earlier, uh, one of our campuses, one of our four sites is uh, part of uh, the 33rd Street campus there. And so this afternoon when he goes, he actually gets an opportunity to minister with some of our church there. You may, I've been asked a few times, why is that such a priority to us? Why do we have, it takes a lot of resources, it takes a lot of personal energy. Why do we have church behind, um, by, behind prison walls together with them? Well, part of it comes from what Jesus taught us in Matthew 25. Uh, the fact that Jesus was uh, explaining in this passage different phrases that would represent what it looked like to be one of his followers. If you want to claim to be a disciple of mine or a, a student of mine, this is one of the things you would do. And one of the phrases he uses in Matthew 25 is, when I was in prison, you came and visited me. Interesting thing is, we have no record of Jesus ever being imprisoned. So he's using it as an example. He's identifying with the prisoner and saying, when you serve them in my name, when you express love to them in my name, the ones that we often push aside and separate from society, when you do that in my name, it's as if you're doing it for me. And I love this about Jesus because he's placing value, he's speaking value in life into everyone when he does this. He's saying that everybody matters to God, whether you're free to walk the streets or you find yourself behind bars. I can identify with both. And when you show love and you show that they matter to God, you're reflecting who I am. So clearly, some of these 2.4 million uh, people who are behind bars today, we have an opportunity to just touch a little of them, but we do that in the name of Jesus. And, and clearly when he's saying, he's talking about setting prisoners free, there's a social or judicial element to what Jesus' words are. Some of the people who are behind bars today, they're there because of things they've done wrong. But some of the others are there because of injustices that have put them there. And so we do what we can to bring freedom even behind bars. But there's more than that. It's not just for those who are incarcerated. It's for those, all of us, actually, Jesus is speaking to um, the human condition in this passage in fact, he talks a little bit more about this in John chapter 8. He says, um, truly, I tell you, everyone who sins, best we can tell that's hovering right around 100% of people right now. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, or that word slave, um, the original Greek word can actually also be translated prisoner. Here it's translated slave, but elsewhere it's translated prisoner. Everyone who um, sins is a prisoner to sin. Jesus is talking about the condition of people, not just those who are incarcerated or in jail today, but he is talking about all people before God when he talks about setting prisoners free because all of us, to some extent, are held captive. And there's this clear message from Scripture. God wants all of us, each of us, to be able to experience what true freedom means. In fact, listen to some of these verses in the New Testament. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that God has set us free. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. 1 Peter 2.16, live as free people. There's a pattern there, isn't there? And these verses, again, are not just for those who are being held behind bars. These are for people in the church in the first century, incarcerated or otherwise, that God wanted them to know what true freedom looked like. So while there, think of it this way, while there are 2.4 million people in prison today in the United States, how many people do you really think, although while not physically incarcerated, are really experiencing some version of captivity in their life? Because my belief is, and I think the scriptures are teaching because of the words of Jesus here, that all of us at different times, maybe in the season you're in now or maybe in one that you've gone through, knows what it means to be held captive by something. Can I give you some examples and see if you identify with them? Many people today are being held captive, being held prisoner by shame, some by fear, others by hurt, 
or betrayals they've experienced. Some of us are held prisoner by uh, defeat, failures of our past. For others, it's pride that just swallows you up and holds you captive. Others, it's anger or superficiality or prejudice that we don't let go of or indifference, aloneness, habits, and the list goes on and on. And again, it may be that as you hear that list, you identify and feel, man, me, myself right now, I'm feeling that. I know I'm held captive by that. And even if you aren't right now, you certainly know people who are held captive by these different types of prisons. We've come to recognize this, and I think you know this to be true as well, that some of the most captive people on the planet aren't even behind bars. Well, some of the most free people on the planet are. That's because there's a big difference. This is kind of a key. There's a big difference to the status that we have right now versus what we experience. Our status and our current circumstances may be difficult, but it's our experience in those circumstances that really helps us know whether we're free or not. Just because part of Summit is currently at 33rd Street behind bars, it doesn't mean that they can't experience freedom in terms of their heart, in terms of their soul and and their humanity. Likewise, just because others of us may be free to do what we please today, to walk the streets uh, in complete freedom as as citizens, it doesn't mean that we're experiencing freedom personally. It's kind of like when we talk about being fully alive. Being fully alive is a lot more than just breathing lungs, breathing air into your lungs or letting your heart beat. That's not being fully alive, right? Similarly, when we talk about being fully free, it's not simply the absence of just being held in constraints. Being fully alive and fully free is so much more. There are some who, um, in fact, when you talk about being free, they, they might have this idea of when I'm free, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. Nobody cramps my style. I decide my own way. I get to make my own choices. That's what it means to be free. I can do anything I want. If you want to play that logic out, you can go home this afternoon if you have a swimming pool, drain the pool, and take a nice big swan dive off the side of it. And you say, well, that doesn't even make sense. You're right, it doesn't make sense. It's illogical, but you have the freedom to do it. If that's the only purpose there is to your freedom, then go for it. You can do anything you want. But when you do that and when you operate with that kind of a logic, it doesn't benefit anyone, and it's going to cause you great pain ultimately. And sometimes we exercise our freedom that way. Freedom should be much more than that. In fact, Jesus gives us what freedom is about. Freedom is about being set free to be what God designed you to be. You've been set free to be what God designed you to be. You may remember back at the beginning of the year, if you heard Zach Van Dyke preach on the Good Samaritan, he used the phrase, this is what you were built for. It's that same idea. You have been set free to live out what you've been built for. And Jesus shows us that. Jesus calls us to that. It's to love others and make things right, make things as they should be. In other words, be people of justice. Galatians 5 tells us this, Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. We referenced that earlier, remember? Called to be free. But he goes on and says this, why? Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh or for yourself or for your own desires, but rather use your freedom to serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. We have been set free for a purpose and it's to make things that are broken new, to set what is wrong and make it right again. There's a couple things to note about captivity. Uh, Captivity means that one of two things has happened. Either you've done something wrong, and that is often the case, or something has been done wrong to you, an injustice. 
either I'm guilty of something, that's why I'm held captive, or something has happened maybe outside of my control and, and I've gotten the short end of this stick and an injustice has taken place in my life. Um, John chapter 8 kind of captures both of those situations in this beautiful story um, of, of forgiveness. Uh, John chapter 8, the Pharisees uh, find this woman who it says in the scripture is caught in the very act of adultery. And they take her and they drag her in front of everybody up to where Jesus has been doing some teaching, just interrupt the whole thing. And they ask Jesus, what do we do with this woman? Should we stone her? Because the law tells us we should be stoning a person who's caught in adultery. And you might think, well, that's good. They're trying to live according to the justice of the law. Not at all. They don't care at all about the law at this point. In fact, if they did, they would have brought the person that she was with before Jesus as well because the law was clear that both parties who were guilty in a, in a moment of adultery were to be stoned to death. So they don't care about the woman. They don't care about the man. They don't care about the law. What are they doing? They just, they're so, their hearts are so messed up. They're just trying to trip Jesus up with the law. And Jesus um, has this woman in front of him. And, and let me ask you a question. Is she wrong in this passage? Has she done something wrong? Yeah, she's guilty. And she's in need of forgiveness. Are the Pharisees wrong in this passage? Absolutely, they're guilty and they have created an injustice. But what's beautiful is Jesus creates this third way. It's this third way that offers forgiveness and the opportunity for restoration. Jesus looks down, sees the woman, and he says to them, whoever of you is, is uh, not guilty of any sin, cast the first stone at her. And he gives them an opportunity to be restored because they're reminded of they are not perfect. There is a holy God that they have missed the mark on. We don't know what happens with these guys other than they drop the rocks. They know they can't uh, do what Jesus said because none of them are perfect and they walk away. Whether they ever allowed themselves to have their heart restored, we don't get the story, but we do see what happens with this woman. Jesus looks around and says, who is here to accuse you? And she said, no one. He's the one at this moment that could throw rocks at her. But he takes that third pathway, that pathway of forgiveness. He says, I don't condemn you either. Go and be restored. Go and sin no more. Here's the thing. There are times in our life when we're going to need either one or both of these. You may be here today, and, and the truth is it doesn't matter whether an injustice has happened in your life or you are in need of forgiveness. Either way, God just wants you to be restored. He wants you to know what freedom is. Have you done wrong and need his forgiveness? He wants to set you free like he did for the woman. Have you faced an injustice? Is there something that's broken your heart because you've got the short end of the stick? There's a wrong that needs to be made right. He wants you, even in those circumstances, he wants you to know freedom and be able to be set free. Sin is the root of all evil. The scripture teaches us that. The brokenness in me and the injustices that are all around us. And the good news from this passage that we're reading in Luke 4 is that Jesus came to fix both. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to go on a trip to Israel. And if you've not done that before, I encourage you. What an amazing, I spent 10 days there just touring some of the sites that Jesus was at and some of his followers and recounting some of the scriptural stories uh, of the work of God in the New Testament church. And I've had a lot of people since that trip ask me, man, what was your favorite part? What was the favorite thing you saw? I, I wouldn't be able to answer that yet. That's gonna take a while to peg that one. There were just so many great things to experience. But I can tell you the one that gave me the most chills. <laughs> and I can tell you this with the help of a picture here. Um, this is a picture uh, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. It's actually in the city of Jerusalem today. But where we're standing is uh, right outside of Caiaphas's palace, the ruins of where Caiaphas, the high priest during the time of Jesus, where his palace was. And it may be a little difficult to tell, but going through there, that's a, a flight of stairs 
over 2,000 year old limestone stairs. And if you go around the bend to the left behind that wall, it's right where we believe Jesus had the last supper with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed by Judas. After that last supper, what does Jesus do? He comes back down and almost 100% certainty, uh, archeologists and theologians believe Jesus would have came right down this very flight of stairs. And as he would have came down, we can take it to the next picture. His journey, would, these are the same pictures right here in the foreground. His journey would have taken him right down the stairs on the inside of these trees, go down into, it looks like a valley down there. There's some cars you see down there. I don't think those cars were there when Jesus was around, but we're not 100% sure. Um, he would have gone through what's called the Kidron Valley. Uh, topography is all the same from the time of Jesus. Jesus would have walked right down through there. You can see the uh, walls of old Jerusalem up there in the top corner. He would have walked in front of the walls, continued through the valley. And you see the batch of trees kind of dark in the top in the middle. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. This is where Jesus prayed fervently to God, please let this cup pass over me. He knew that the crucifixion was at hand. He knew he was about to be betrayed. And right in the middle of all that, Judas comes, kisses him on the cheek, soldiers arrest him, and they drag him right back where he just came, right back through the Kidron Valley or right back around, right up these very steps and into Caiaphas's palace where he is tried because he has claimed the blasphemy of being the Messiah. He's held in prison and until he's uh, tried before Pilate where he'll be crucified. So this is all happening inside and where we're standing right here is the courtyard of Caiaphas's palace. These are the ruins. You say, what's significant about that? Well, the scriptures tell us something very significant happened there. You might remember around the Last Supper, Jesus said that I'm gonna be betrayed and every one of you are gonna deny me. And Peter raises his hand and says, not me. I am with you to the end, Jesus. Jesus looks him in the eye and says, before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny me three times. While all this is playing out and while Jesus is being tried right there in Caiaphas' palace uh, inside the walls that are now ruins, Peter is out here on this courtyard and it says right there, Peter was in the courtyard of Caiaphas' palace when he was denying Jesus three different times that he even knew who Jesus was. And after the third time, the rooster crows. And Jesus, uh, Peter is immediately reminded of his failure, that he has denied the one who is going to give his life for him. And scripture tells us Peter went away in bitter tears. And here's where the hair stands up on my arms because as we're standing right here and I'm clicking away trying to take some pictures and our tour guide's telling all this story, I'm not making any of this at all, down from within the Kidron Valley where those cars are. I'm not kidding. It was amazing. And it was just, wow, he's telling us this very story and we're just, oh my goodness. And I just reflected in that moment as we're hearing the very story of, of the rooster reminding Peter of his failure. And I, I couldn't help, as we started walking away from there, I couldn't help but think about the fact that Peter fails and immediately somebody wants to remind him of it. It's this rooster. And I thought about the fact that even today, every day, we're failing. We miss the mark. We create things that we're gonna need forgiveness for. And there are voices, there are roosters, there are voices that wanna remind us of our failures. Sometimes it's the voices within as we reflect on our failures and we know the real us. Sometimes it's the voices around us that want to remind us of our failures. And I, and I just want to encourage you with this day. Don't listen to those voices. Listen to the voice who said that I have come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Listen to the one who not only offered that proclamation, but made the way 
even as the failure was happening, made the way for that failure to be forgiven. It's true in Peter's life and it's true in our life. Listen to the voice of the one who wants to set you free. It's a freedom that offers forgiveness. It's a freedom that offers restoration. And it's a freedom that can ultimately lead to joy. When we have been set free, we experience outlandish joy. You know that when you've met somebody who's been set free. Speaking of joy, can I tell you just a little bit about my daughter, Lauren? You saw the picture earlier, and Lauren's with us uh, at this service today. 16 years ago, God gave us this beautiful gift of a, of a baby girl, and we named her Lauren. And about a year after Lauren was born, we started realizing she was having something odd with some of her health and um, realized she was having seizures. Uh, within a couple months, doctors were able to confirm that the, result, the, the, the cause of the seizures was epilepsy. And so for 12 years, Lauren navigated through just the torture of what epilepsy is. If you know much about epilepsy, it's, it's like cancers and other different type of ailments that there's this long spectrum of, sometimes it can, a little medicine can control it and lives can be relatively normal, lived out, and other times it can be severely debilitating and there's just no answer for it. And you may have seen stories on either end. Lauren's this kind of a unique anomaly. She should be over here. Uh, there were times in Lauren's life, I mean, all the medicines, a dozen or more different medicines we tried, a couple surgeries when she was four and five, and all the different treatments. Can't tell you how many nights Lauren has spent in the hospital trying to figure out how to control the seizures because she was having these grand mal, severe seizures, and sometimes more than what we even realized. Um, we would do these sleep studies, seven, 10 day sleep studies. Uh, EEGs and everything, trying to read brain mapping and all that. And the doctors would say, Mr. and Mrs. Bell, your daughter had over 200 seizures last night. She would wake up, every, we'd be there with her through all this, but just not having an awareness of how many times this was happening. We'd wake up, she'd cry after having a seizure, fall back asleep, wake up again with a seizure, cry, fall back asleep. And that pattern would continue all night, all day. And when you go through something like that, you usually end up over here. Somehow God has just protected Lauren's life and we just praise him for that uh, grace in her life. But we realized, we recognized a few years ago that there was um, some of the cognitive and physical development was starting to regress and it created concerns. It's not just something that will stay static. We either have to be able to see some improvement or we're gonna start heading this way. So shortly after moving to the Orlando area about five years ago, we met with a team of doctors at Florida Hospital, did a whole nother battery of tests and examination and they said, We've got some good news sort of on one side, but it's gonna to lead to some very important news that you guys need to process through. The good news is all these seizures that we see in Lauren's life, they're all contained on this side of the brain. Nothing on this side is happening. And that's a big deal because we can do something about it if it's on one side of the brain. If it's on both sides, it's a point of no return. Um, but if we don't do something radical, we believe within the next 18 months, based on all the data and what we're seeing in Lauren's life, that it's gonna start leaping to the other side and the cognitive and the physical regression you're seeing is just gonna start speeding up. And Lauren will be in a wheelchair and worse within 18 months, is that what they were projecting? So what is this radical thing we need to do, doctors? Well, they said we need to do what's called a hemispherectomy. And if that's a new term for you, what happened as a result of this, and I mean, I'm fast tracking through, you can't imagine unless you've gone through some stories like this, which I know some of you have, um, what we went through in those days trying to navigate through this. But on January 18 of 2013, just over four years ago now, doctors at Florida Hospital performed a 16-hour surgery. At that time, may still be true, but we know at that time was the longest surgery they had ever done at Florida Hospital. 16-hour surgery where they detached and removed most of the right side of Lauren's brain. 
and what remains is detached so that it can't communicate with the rest of the body. That way it's isolating any seizure activity and letting the healthy side uh, continue to grow. And uh, that was hard, <laughs> very hard. The hope of the surgery was that Lauren would be set free of seizures and the, the joy, the miracle of it is she has been over four years ago now and Lauren doesn't have, yay. <laughs> Lauren has not had one single seizure since January 18 of 2013. Lauren is completely medicine-free after taking medicines for years, which is choosing your own poison, trying to control this. Um, she's completely medicine-free. And you get a chance to meet her. I hope you do. Take a few moments afterwards. Um, she has some residual effects. You don't go through a decade-plus of seizures without it having a residual result on you. You don't go through a 16-hour surgery without there being a bit of a cost. But I will tell you, man, having a daughter who was held captive by seizures for that long, we celebrate the miracle of who she is today. That's the smaller miracle, though, in my heart. The bigger miracle in Lauren's life is the joy that she lives with. After all she's endured for this long, after that kind of day, in fact, when we drive by Florida Hospital going up I-4 together, you see the big tower in the distance, she'll say, that's the hospital that God used to change my life. I mean, every time, that's what she'll say every time we drive down the, um, down the highway, we know it's coming. Every time we talk about January 18, 2013 and celebrate an anniversary of it or something like that, mind you, the day that she went through basically hell on earth, and we did as well, she will describe that day, she'll say, it's the best day of my life. She went through all of that, she endured all of that. There's a result sometimes, there's a pain she still carries, and she calls it the best day of her life. How is that possible? because Lauren knows what it means to be held captive. And now Lauren knows what it means to be set free. And she's experienced that in a rich physical sense, but Jesus has made a way for all of us to experience that in a very spiritual, in a very holistic sense. There is great joy that comes when a person who has been held captive can be set free. And I can't stand here this morning and tell you that if you're dealing with epilepsy or if you're dealing with cancer or you're dealing with any kind of physical ailments, I can't stand here and tell you this morning if you're dealing with betrayal and the brokenheartedness that that brings or you're dealing with anger or resentments or you're dealing with any of those other things that have held you captive, I can't tell you this morning that instantly you're gonna be set free. But I can tell you this, this is, I really can tell you this from scripture. The more we lean into Jesus, the more we walk into his words and live out his ways and we trust in his leadership in our life, the more we will experience freedom, even in those circumstances, even if they don't change, the more we can experience the freedom that only he can bring. Jesus stands up, picks up the scroll and begins to read. And he says, I have been sent to proclaim the good news that prisoners have been set free. And this is available to you right here, right now, today. And then he says later in the book of John, it's recorded that Jesus says, if I have set you free, you are free indeed. Would you bow with me in prayer? God, I am so grateful that we have the ability to take these words in our language in this day and we can receive them. We can read them. We can hear them. We can be impacted by them. We can be made aware that there is a, a Jesus, there is a Messiah 
And in your divine plan, you provided him both as this mouthpiece to let us know what freedom is all about, but also he was the provision of what freedom could be. Thank you for the cost that was paid on our behalf so that we could know what it means to be free. Thank you for your incredible grace that goes beyond our ability to ever use it up. Your incredible grace that reaches out and makes all things new. Your incredible grace that can restore all of the brokenness that's in us and around us. And you can take what's unjust, make it right again. You can take what needs forgiving and you can make us whole again. So I pray for my friends here today, God, that each of us would live in and rest in these words of Jesus and celebrate that you have come to set us free. I pray this in his name, the name of Jesus, amen.